All right, everybody. So today we have the very esteemed Brad Schoenfeld. How are you doing, man? Good. So, Dr. Schoenfeld, we uh, we first spoke a little over a year ago. Um, and actually, when I first reached out to you, uh, we had mentioned our mutual contact, Dr. Nicholas Radimus, who at the time I didn't realize you also knew, but you actually you have a relationship with him, right? He had known you through when you were getting your PhD. Is that correct? Uh, he was actually on my dissertation committee. Total respect for Dr. Radimus, one of the uh, real good guys in the field and certainly a very astute researcher. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny because it wasn't until after I graduated that I kind of realized you know, that he was kind of a big deal in the industry. Now he's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning. And as a, you know, 19-year-old college kid, I'm just like, okay. I mean, I knew he was really big, and I, I knew he, he lifted and took it seriously himself, and he's obviously an intelligent guy. Um, but as I've been doing this podcast over the last year or so, a lot of the people who I have talked to know him. Uh, you know, I've also talked about how he's a really great guy, great researcher. So it's kind of cool having since had more conversations with him and actually hanging out with him to really see that, you know, he's very knowledgeable. And to see him delve beyond just what we talked about in the classroom has been really cool. So I, I definitely share that respect. Yep. So you are kind of known, as, I mean, both in the research world and in the social media world as kind of like the premier researcher when it comes to muscle hypertrophy, which I think is really awesome because a lot of times there's a distinction, right? We have these social media experts and then we have social media experts and then we have like people who are really delved into research. But there's only a few of you guys like you, Dr. Stu Phillips, who, you know, there's these topics that the whole like lifting world is interested in. And you also have this incredible background where you've, you've competed yourself, you know, you've really like lived it and you've done the research. So is that kind of where it started for you, the, the competing or like, yeah. did, were you into the science side first? Yeah, it was a long and winding road, uh, to quote Paul McCartney, but um, uh, ultimately, I think one of the reasons that my research has resonated uh, so much with the general public is that I started out as a bodybuilder and as a personal trainer, and really, when I got to, we're going now almost a dozen years since I've been in the research academia, uh, when I began my academic career, my focus was on uh, researching all the topics that I wanted to know about when I was a practitioner bodybuilder. I realized, basically when I was uh, a practitioner, I realized how little was really known. The, mm -hmm. the research, you know, strength and conditioning research mostly focused on strength uh, goals and power, which is from, from an athletic standpoint, that's where, where the primary uh, benefits are. And kind of uh, hypertrophy was almost a bastard child. So you right. research hypertrophy because there's a relationship between muscle growth, muscle mass, and strength. But as a standalone, it really was not well studied, and most people didn't care uh, about bodybuilding. So uh, ultimately, my uh, my previous life in in a uh, in a practical sense really has driven my academic life, and I think that's resonated with a lot of people. Look, uh, here's what I'd say. When I was a personal trainer, uh, I, I mean, I can count on one hand how many people would come in and say, yeah, I want to improve my vertical jump or, right, you know, right. run, run, uh, run the hundred in, in less than half a second. Now, obviously athletes do. I'm talking about the general public. Sure. Uh, they came in, they say, I want to look great naked. Uh, yeah. Became my, Hence my the website. website name, they, right. they right. wanted, uh, basically they wanted to gain muscle and, and lose body fat. So, uh, that was as a bodybuilder, that's the focus. And certainly it's, uh, it's been my uh, real uh, focus of attention for a dozen, close to a dozen years of research now. 
Right. Yeah. And like you said, I think it just it resonates so much because all these endeavors, like athletic endeavors, we have people who are super into their given sport, but almost everybody cares about like fitness and aesthetics. Right. I mean, there are very few people just don't care at all about how they look. And, And so I think that's amazing. I think that's also where some of the frustration can come from, because because it's open to everybody everybody has an opinion and you know if somebody loses weight now they're a weight loss coach if if somebody is naturally kind of strong they're a powerlifting coach and obviously that can you know cause a lot of tension on social media and 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 also i'm sure among somebody like you you actually made a post recently of talking about like staying in your lane and um it just made me think you know the dunning kruger effect for anybody who, who doesn't know that's just basically the idea that people who are kind of novice will think that they are far above where they really are. Uh, that can apply to skills, but it can also apply to knowledge. And you see that almost universally where somebody is a year or two in. Um, I just saw yesterday a post about somebody, you know, was debating if somebody was a natural lifter and somebody was saying how this is, are you kidding me? This would be so easy to achieve naturally. If, if you can't do this, you have no idea what you're doing. Lo and behold, he then says, you know, I'm only 10 months in, but if I just keep giving this dedication, I'll be there. And you just you see that a lot where somebody is kind of new, they, they get that new, you know, first five, 10 pounds of muscle and they assume it's going to be linear. And within two years, they're an expert. And then you kind of see this trailing off where they were, OK, maybe I'm not as ex- experienced or knowledgeable as I realized. And then you get to like true expert level. So I don't know if maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what you see in the, in the industry with that happening. Well, there's an old adage that says a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And that certainly is goes to that uh, Dunning-Kruger effect point. And yeah, um, I, I think you need to understand your limitations. Look, I, uh, uh, I'm a student of the literature. I've been in, in the field now, uh, both as a practitioner and, and as an educator for you know, two dozen years now. Yeah. Uh, and um, what I would say is that I'm still learning and that uh, the more you know, really the more you realize how much there is to know. Uh, and how uh, far we are from really have uh, really understood mechanisms of hypertrophy. Just we're just going to confine this, or I will, to the hypertrophic aspect. But this goes for many fields, obviously. Uh, and uh, and ultimately, yeah, that uh, I think a little humility is always a good thing. That uh, I never am afraid to admit I'm wrong. I, Lord knows, that I've changed my opinion on many things over the years uh, based upon emerging research as it's come in and my better understanding of how to interpret research. Uh, and I've gotten, uh, by that respect, uh, by that account, less knowledge, I've become less knowledgeable to my own in, in right. the sense that uh, you realize how much I didn't know then you know, or how much I thought I knew then. Right. And really I didn't. So uh, it's, I think a, a never-ending learning process that we all should understand. And uh, again, I think to reiterate the point that uh, people, one big issue I see in the field is that people get hardened to a given opinion and then they don't want to let go of that opinion. Right. Because they, I think they feel stupid that day. I, I don't want to admit I'm wrong. And uh, the true scientist and the true practitioner as well, you, you should just be seeking the truth. You want to do what's best. So clinging to a false theory, to a disproven theory, is kind of stupid. <laughs> right, right, uh, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's only going to get you suboptimal results or, or those who you're working with. So. Right. 
And and I think anybody who is clinging to a like one single method, that is something that you see in a lot of maybe like beginner to maybe intermediate people where I, I know I went through that myself. You know, I've been lifting since I was like 13 years old. And, you know, when I was 14, 15, I had like this was the method. And, and then as I got older, I thought, man, that was so stupid to think that that was a good way to train when in reality, like I still grew with that. And then as I got older, I realized like, OK, both of those could work like it's it's not so dogmatic. Um, and ultimately, I mean, we obviously have these basic fundamental principles. And then from there, we're just trying to learn, you know, maybe this method is a little bit better. Or this method is a little bit better. And that's where the research comes in. But, you know, it, it's less of this dogmatic, like this is clearly the way, you know. Well, and I, I'll even uh, go further than that and saying that, uh, yeah, you, you can make gains doing many different things. And genetics obviously will have effects on your genetics. But... Uh, ultimately what science helps you do, number one, is to get in the right ballpark and to understand the nuances so that you can optimize your own individual response. Science will never tell you what to do, but it's going to give you insights into how you can better approach things. Right, uh, right. And uh, there, there is no one best routine. There is going to be a best routine for a given individual. It's just a matter of finding that. And ultimately, everyone then becomes their own N equals one experiment. Right. Uh, once you start to, the more experience you get, you need to constantly be aware of uh, of your limitations, your responses, and when you're not responding, you got to be savvy enough to say, you know what, I need to uh, apply a novel response. Um, this is not working anymore for me. If it was, or it's not working as well as it should, and I need to figure out what's going to work better now for where I'm at. Right, and I think you know that kind of goes to some degree on when people look at these studies, right, they think it's not like the studies are meant to find the perfect routine, right? Because that's never going to happen, number one. Number two, anybody who actually goes through and, and looks at the studies that show individual data points will see that somebody who responds great to one routine might not, I mean, there tends to be a trend, right? You know, obviously, if you have amazing genetics or muscle growth, you might respond to a lot of things, but there's going to be a variation there in how you respond. And I think people look at these, you know, like there's obviously the the volume study that you did that was you know very popular and had a lot of discussion on. And everybody thought, wow, you know, 45 sets a week. And it's like, when people are designing this study, a lot of times the point is to look for a specific effect. And sometimes to find that effect, you have to take something to an extreme. It doesn't mean that you should then look at that study and follow the exact routine, right, that's done in these studies. Yeah, of course. They're called proof of principle studies. It's not made to be an ecologically valid uh, program that people should, and that's generally the case. Research, for the most part, doesn't look at a program to follow. The goal would be to look at does more volume uh, is there a benefit to more versus less volume? Is there a benefit to higher versus lower repetitions? How you then design the routine is going to be specific to what you're looking to accomplish. And there's many ways to design routine, obviously. There's right. an endless number of ways to design routines and uh, what your subject uh, sample population is going to look like. So anyway, that's, uh, there's always uh, limitations, first of all, in extrapolating uh, results and, and unfortunately, when there's too many uh, armchair researchers out there now, which kind of goes to your point before, they've never carried out uh, research and really don't understand. They uh, they think they do, which is kind of done in Gruger. Right, they don't right. understand how to uh, how to generalize, how to extrapolate the the results and generalize based on the results of the study, and and that's a 
first of all, that's something that you do uh, get a, I do think it's very important to carry out research to truly appreciate it, but uh, you at least have to understand your limitations if, if you don't. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people, they almost see it as like a, a battle. Like they would love to see, okay, we're going to do a, a research on Max OT versus, you know, like Wendler's 531 or something and compare and see like, you know, just <laughs> have this like battle between different routines and find the best one. And, you know, that's obviously not going to be done. And, and we're, like you said, we're looking for principles that we can apply to ourselves and, and get better over time. Correct. Um, so I, I just seen a paper... I'm forgetting if it was just in the last few months or maybe I had only just seen it in the last few months, but it was about blood flow restriction and it was just showing, you know, significant muscle damage, which I think when it was first being studied, blood flow restriction, people were talking about how it didn't cause as much damage, if I'm remembering correctly, and then another people showed it did. But I remember people were saying, okay, you can train lighter, you know, it was like 30% of your 1RM and you can get similar results. And there was talk about, well, is this adding anything or is it maybe just something to do you know, as a variation, or if you're injured, obviously that can have some application there. Um, do we have any new data or any data you're aware of that shows blood flow restriction specifically added on top of normal training and it adding a benefit to normal training? Because most of all, at least what I've seen is comparing it to normal training and showing similar effects. Yeah, so uh, two things to go back to your first point. There is some evidence that uh, blood flow restriction training can induce muscle damage. Uh, it seems to be somewhat for a, a number one specific to individuals. So uh, I actually just collaborated on a, uh, a paper, there's a review paper with um, Matthias Wernbaum, who's one of the leading blood flow restriction uh, experts in the world. Uh, and uh, it was a review paper, but we looked at the data, the bulk of the data, and uh, one of the studies showed that. Um, Got how many subjects were in the study, but two of the most of the subjects showed no damage, but two of them had massive amounts mm. of damage. That would be indicative almost of rhabdomyolysis, where the really? results were such. And uh, it's kind of difficult to know that part of it has to do with are you training to failure or not? Obviously, the training status of the individuals. So there are there are factors, but as a general rule, there seems to be less damage with blood flow restriction training. But as you point out. That's certainly not the case universally. And to your second point, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that a colleague of mine, um, uh, he, he's out of Norway. He just finished his, um, uh, Thomas, Thomas uh, Bjornsson. They say Thomas in, uh, in the Scandinavian countries. And he just did his PhD and one, he published several studies on BFR, but I thought the most interesting one was on trained power lifters. And what he found was that adding in uh, BFR to a, a periodized power lifting routine increased muscle fiber type one hypertrophy. Uh, I forgot the percentage, it was I think by seven or 8%, whereas the group that just continued without the BFR and continued their normal training had zero, did not get any type one hypertrophy. So I think, you know, what relevance does that have to a powerlifter? Probably very little, because mm -hmm. your type 1 fibers have obviously not much of a contribution, or, or at least theoretically have much of a contribution to powerlifting. However, uh, the fact that they were well-trained with heavy loads would seem to indicate that for someone who's looking to maximize hypertrophy, bodybuilding, right. uh, there may be an additive benefit. Right. Now, 
I, I don't know if they looked at the history of these, this powerlifters training. Did they tend to, cause I would imagine like if that would be less surprising if they had always stuck with these like lower rep, like kind of stereotypical powerlifting routines, obviously a lot of powerlifters do incorporate higher reps. I would just wonder maybe for like those of us interested in hypertrophy, if we, and maybe, I mean, you can just speculate on this. If just adding the BFR training on top of our typical, let's say bodybuilding training would provide any additional benefit. Uh, so I, as far as uh, what the powerlifters training history, I don't believe they got that uh, specific in terms of assessing what they did. But look, most powerlifters are training in similar, especially in Norway, they seem to be from a certain school of training. The Norwegian mm. powerlifters have uh, defined training ideas. Um, to your question as to speculating, I would say there's a good logical basis or at least a, a, rash, a good, good rationale for potential type one benefits in that uh, there is some evidence that um, metab metabolite buildup, particularly uh, so hydrogen ions, uh, interfere with, uh, type, with uh, type two fiber contractility during training, and thus it would force your type one fibers to continue a set. Um, whether that actually, so that, that's again, a, it provides a rationale, whether that right. does play out, we don't know, but it, there have now been a number of studies which have showed preferential type one hypertrophy with uh, low, load blood flow, low load blood flow restriction training. And uh, given the rationale for it, I think it's certainly uh, feasible. I mean, am I highly confident? No, right. but uh, I certainly don't discount it. And uh, I think the adage that, uh, and I'm a big, uh, big subscriber to the, this adage that uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And when you right. have at least some evidence towards it and a good rationale, it, and, and again, it's cost benefit, I don't see a negative to it. Uh, right. So if your goal is to uh, maximize hypertrophy, I do uh, recommend including some BFR in the training program. Yeah, yeah. It actually, it's one of the few things I feel like I haven't tried after all these years. And it is, I mean, like you said, there's no reason not to. Um, you know, it obviously takes a little bit of setup to do, but not not much. So uh, I'd be interested to, you know, see how it works, especially because having lifted for so long now, obviously, if anything changes, I notice it, right? Because almost nothing's changed at this point. So, you know, I think if you're two years into training and you do BFR, I'm, I'm sure you're going to grow, but you're probably going to grow without it. So it'll be interesting to see like, okay, my arms haven't grown in years, you know, can I get an eighth of an inch or something? I mean, obviously not the most uh, scientific measurement, just a, you know, but something. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, going back to the idea of people maybe not staying in their lane. I'll hear people talk about terms that, I think very few people maybe understand on a, a deep level, you know, people will say, oh, if you do this, it, it raises IGF-1 or mTOR. And not that that's a wrong statement, but maybe that they're saying it, but they don't necessarily know like what that means or, or what implies. You know, I think if you said somebody, hey, you want you want mTOR as high as possible, they'd say, yeah, of course. Like they, there's just not a lot of understanding of the mechanisms. And I, I know I wrote this down when we had first talked uh, how you'd mentioned high levels of mTOR can have a negative effect. Yeah. Um, can you maybe just briefly touch on that? When you said touch on it, I mean, so there seems to be more of a sweet spot for obviously elevating mTOR is very important. Uh, mTOR is a obligatory uh, enzyme in the intracellular cascade, but uh, very high levels of mTOR. Now, 
I, I don't think this is that these are not these are done in um, rodent models, and it's not humans, at least that I'm right. aware of. I've not seen any human studies on this in, in, in vitro or in ex vivo research. But anyway, but uh, the there is evidence that a, a very high chronic chronically high levels of mTOR seem to downregulate hypertrophy. Um, I, I can't. I've not seen a logical, you know, a uh, uh, definitive rationale, mechanistic rationale right. for it. But yeah, that uh, and that often is the case. Uh, now, not always the case. I mean, testosterone. There doesn't seem to be any. Right. <laughs> uh, there's no inverted U. Uh, right, there, right. That the more they're taking, you know, you keep giving someone more testosterone, they seem to grow more. Uh, but with many, uh, there's this what's called a hormetic response where. With many things, once you reach a certain threshold, you plateau, and then ultimately you regress if right, uh, right. if you keep that up. I was actually going to ask you about the hormetic response because I think when people look at, especially acute changes in hormones, you know, obviously it's kind of old news at this point that these acute changes we see after a workout aren't necessarily. I mean, not that they're not important, but they're not telling you what you thought, you know, this elevation in growth hormone, for instance, is not going to have this amazing response. We also see an elevation of cortisol, right after a workout. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, am I remembering correctly that AMPK is elevated after workout, but that it antagonizes mTOR, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody might think that that's kind of contradictory, right? If we want mTOR and cortisol, people think of as like the catabolic hormone, right? And that's also elevated after a workout. And if, and if I remember correctly, I think the elevations in cortisol correlate more with muscle growth than testosterone even, right? And, that, and you know, obviously the illogical conclusion from that is, well, then we want cortisol as high as possible, right? And it's probably more of a response to the training. And so I, I think it just kind of speaks to the fact that, and I'm not saying that I have any expertise there, but just that unless you are an expert in all these different pathways and everything, it's hard to truly understand exactly what's going on by just looking at, you know, maybe one sample set. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, that even those who are experts, there's so much we still don't know about intracellular signaling and how the interplay between uh, the different enzymes within the cascades. I mean, we know a lot. I'm not saying that it's still completely up in the air, but the, uh, like you said, things like why does AMPK, which is a negative regulator of, I mean, it's an energy sensor and it's a negative, uh, it has antagonistic effects on mTOR, uh, post-exercise resistance training, uh, we see elevations in AMPK, yet we see robust growth and the explanatory uh, factors and how the signaling cascade um, uh, synergizes to create growth or, or to have negative effects, catabolic effects, still is very, uh, where I, I would say in the early stages of figuring all this out. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. It, it, I think it's one of the cool things about being interested in the research side, because I think those who, not to say that, you know, we, we talk about a lot of different ways to grow, right? And I find that very interesting. But at the end of the day, I'd be surprised if there's going to be too much where it's like, wow, something that we didn't realize caused dramatic increases in, in growth. You know, I think for the most part, we know the basics, but I think there's still so much to understand mechanistically, you know, from a hormone standpoint, from like signaling patterns, there's there's so much to still determine. And who knows, maybe down the road, if we can really determine exactly why something's happening, 
some sort of intervention would be able to manipulate that to allow for more growth than would otherwise be expected. Correct. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to briefly talk about training as one gets older. Um, and a lot of times people talk about protein desensitization. And I believe the stimulus for to, to hit maximum muscle protein synthesis when and I don't know how they define older here, but I've heard it's as much as twice as high protein requirements. Um, I don't know if you would then, if you had somebody who was, let's say, 60 come to you, and obviously a lot of times we'd say, okay, higher protein intake, would you then have a correlating difference in how they train, or would you just kind of have them train the same way but with that higher protein intake? Well, first of all, it's the, the protein intake is per dose. Uh, so it's right. not, not daily protein intake that we're talking about. We're talking about how much protein in a given dose right. uh, enhances the muscle protein synthetic response. And it seems to be largely a function of the leucine content. So leucine is a, one of the branched chain amino acids uh, in, uh, in, a pro, in proteins. So uh, it's an essential amino acid and it's uh, been theorized to uh, serve as a trigger to the hypertrophic process, particularly post-exercise hypertrophic process. Um, so they need higher to, they need upwards of double, as you mentioned, the amount of uh, protein to get, or double the amount of leucine then to get that leucine, to hit that leucine threshold. At least that's the theory behind right. it, or at least a, a strong theory. Uh, as far as the training, I wouldn't be basing the training on that, but uh, certainly as you age, there's going to be differences in how you should train. Uh, recovery is, I mean, changes you go through. Yeah. Either you're going to have reductions in, in chronic. So as you mentioned, the acute uh, anabolic hormonal response and hormonal response in general does not seem to be of much, if any, um, effect or have much of, if any, effect on the post-exercise growth. However, chronic hormone hormonal levels, at least within a physiological range, certainly do and, and beyond. So now whether, so meaning if you are within the physiological range, it's not clear. So if your, let's say, testosterone level is 400 and someone else's is 600, well, the range is 300 to 800 or so. Right. It's not clear that that's going to make much, if any, difference. I mean, or right. let's even say 500 to 600, you could say that's a 20% increase, but I've not seen good evidence that that would be much of a factor. But if you're hypogonadal where you're at, 150, uh, yeah, that's going to make a big difference. And that's what you often see is people age. And women, it's even more so in terms mm -hmm. of estrogen levels. Estrogen levels can be tenfold uh, less uh, postmenopausally. And estrogen is the primary female anabolic hormone. So estrogen right. is kind of the equivalent of testosterone for women. Uh, and thus, that makes it harder to build muscle. Recovery is, is uh, more of an issue. Uh, often there are um, osteoarthritic conditions. People just develop osteoarthritis as they age, uh, either genetically or through overuse injuries. Uh, so a host of factors. And again, that's it gives you guidelines. It doesn't. Not all people age the same either. Right, so, right. But uh, as a general guideline, you're going to need to change your training practices. Uh, generally. Uh, Older individuals do not handle as much volume as, as well. There tends to be more non-responders to exercise. 
Interestingly, in the detraining, they don't hold on to muscle as well with reduced volumes. So whereas they don't handle as much higher volumes, they also cannot maintain muscle at lower you know, volumes than they used to. So many things to consider here, and all of them uh, will need to be taken into account, not only on a general basis, but then specific to the individual and how that person responds. You mentioned how, uh, and you're right to point out that that was a, a per dose, right, for the protein. Is there um, not research showing that a higher protein intake total throughout the day would be beneficial? Nothing really for that? I mean, there is in untrained subjects. So in untrained subjects to maintain anabolism, there's some mm -hmm. evidence that, uh, untra that uh, young individuals who are untrained can maintain their uh, muscle at lower protein intakes, but, you know, we're talking about lifting here, so it's, right, right, to me, yeah. not as relevant. They're not right. training, but <laughs> right, for right. resistance-trained individuals, I've not seen any evidence that uh, higher amounts are warranted on a daily basis for older individuals. Okay. Certainly nowhere near double, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it res young resistance-trained individuals need anywhere between about 1.6 to 2.0 grams per kilograms. You certainly don't need 4.0 right. <laughs> kilograms as an older individual. So Right, right. I'm glad you brought up the non-responders because, you know, certainly a lot of people will say like, oh, I'm a non-responder and, and maybe they're misusing the term. I, I know when they look at older individuals, you do find more of that in the uh, trained studies. My understanding is a lot of times we've found that people who seem to be non-responders respond more to, like they need more volume to respond. I, I know you see that as an endurance training too to those adaptations. It's interesting because at least like when I was coming up with, you know, in my teens, they would, a lot of people would talk about how a non-responder, a hard gainer, it was always called, needed lower volume because they needed more recovery. And so a lot of these lower volume routines would be used and I mean, to seemingly have success, but the research seems to show that those who aren't getting good results need more volume. Um, and I don't know if you've seen that same discrepancy in what's recommended for a quote unquote hard gainer versus what the research shows, but maybe you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah, so um, to, to your point, um, so I'll say this. Uh, I don't think there's any, I kind of misused my own term. So I like to use the term poor responders because a non-responder mm -hmm. would indicate that they can't respond. And right. as you pointed out, they might respond poorly to one routine. That doesn't mean they might not respond better. Now, overall, they might respond more poorly than someone else, and there all can be, also can be poor responses to a given muscle group. I mean, most people are gonna have muscle groups that are often will have muscle groups that one muscle responds really well, and other muscles are really difficult to respond. Right. So I think lumping people in, in general, in these categories can be somewhat uh, misapplied. Now with that said, um, I think, so yeah, you are correct, and there was actually a really cool study recent study that just showed this really eloquently, where they did a within-subject design, meaning that one leg, they had one leg randomized to a higher volume, with 15 sets per week, and the on average in the other leg was five sets per week on average. Mm. Uh, and uh, some, some individuals responded very well to the lower volume, but a much greater uh, percentage of the people who responded better uh, were responding to the higher volume, and very few people responded better to the lower volume. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that can't happen? No, uh, if you're a hard gainer and you just have bombed yourself and, or, and you're overtrained, then I think that, yeah, there might be 
benefits. So, so I don't discount that some hard gainers might uh, respond better to lower volume routines. But I think the default generally would be with someone who is a hard gainer, and I think that's a good term, uh, or poor responder to a given routine. The first default would be to try higher volumes, and then if that's not working, then you say, hey, yeah. maybe we need to go in the other direction. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just interesting because like, I think all of the papers who have kind of looked at that do tend to show a better response to higher volumes. And yet, I mean, really for, and I'm sure you saw this too, for like decades, it was, you know, max OT and these more lower volume routines that said, you need more recovery if you're a hard gainer, you need to rest as much, which, you know, I could understand needing more recovery, but it was like the go-to response was, you can't use these high volumes, you need to train with lower volumes. And I don't know why that was, I don't know if it just happened to work for other reasons, but it, it just seemed to always be the advice that was given, which seems pretty contradictory to what we're now finding. Agreed. Um, so you had, it's not a new book necessarily, but your book, uh, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, you had the first edition. When did that first edition come out? Uh, 2016. 16, okay. And then so you just had the second edition come out, right? It just came out uh, a week ago, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and can you just maybe touch on that? I mean, obviously, I would recommend anybody to read that book and maybe some of the updates that you have in there and what people can find in that. Yeah, that's it. To me, it's uh, couldn't be more proud of that book. It's the culmination of my career efforts. So uh, it is a true textbook. There'd been no scientific books on muscle hypertrophy. There'd been science, there's been some good textbooks on uh, strength training, uh, like the Zatsiorski book uh, is, a, is a very good book, and there's some others that just look more from a strength standpoint, strength and, and athletic performance, power, strength. Um, but there's really, as we talked about earlier, uh, hypertrophy has always been kind of the bastard child. And certainly the books, the uh, books that had been in circulation were more consumer-oriented books. The Arnold Schwarzenegger Encyclopedia of mm. Modern Bodybuilding. Right. These are not obviously scientific texts. And I wanted to, uh, I, to me, there was a huge gap in the field for this. And uh, this book is, uh, there's 30% new content in the book, uh, completely updated. So there's been so much new research uh, that's come around over the past uh, five years since I finished the uh, original book, uh, first edition. And I also added two chapters. And you get certain insights into what, like when you write the first book, you, I, you have great intentions. But uh, mm -hmm. when you start getting feedback, you say, hey, I know. And you go through it and you say, hey, I should have done this. I should have done that. I was able to make certain corrections and go back and redo things, uh, do-overs on things that I wished I had done after the book right. was released. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's massively uh, improved, I think. Uh, it's a lot more content. It's a lot more pages now. And uh, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, it's on Amazon. Check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely have a link for that. And it, it's cool. I mean, a lot of respect for being able to do that because, I mean, for one, like you said, it, it's new, right? There's not a lot of books that really touch on that specifically. Uh, but I had a brief idea of, and, you know, maybe I will one day write a book, but I'm really interested in, like, health and longevity. And not only is there just such an incredible amount of information out there, but just to, I don't think most people appreciate the work that would go into writing a book. But then the other thing is, it's a topic that's ever evolving. So it's not like, you know, there's certain topics where 
for the most part, like what's known is known. I mean, there's always these new studies. So for you to have to keep up with that, like you said, 30% new material. I mean, it, it's, I'm sure a daunting task, but, but you know, it's awesome that you're able to get it out. Well, and what I'll say is, is that I started, uh, um, revising. I want to say I, I didn't actually start revising, but I started gathering the data for the second edition literally within weeks after the first edition was finished. Yeah. And I am now got, I continue. So it's, really. it's just a continual process <laughs> and I, I have folders. And, uh, so by the time when the time is right, I then go through and I, you know, I'll update again in another five years or so. Awesome. So I, I just have two final questions for you. The first one is, um, looking forward as far as new research, is there a particular topic that you are most interested in researching something that's really piquing your interest and you want to find out about? Um, I don't think there's a particular, uh, I mean, I, I, well, yeah, I, I think the, uh, respond, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the responder, poor respond, <clears throat> excuse me, responder, poor responder is always a, uh, an interesting area, somewhat difficult to research, but, uh, we, we just published a study that looked at high reps versus low reps. We did, uh, calf raises it wasn't the focus of the study to look at responders, but looking at the data, it was within subject, where subjects did one leg uh, high reps, the other leg low reps. And we saw this very divergent response where some people seemed to respond to high reps and other people to low reps. Was that noise or was that actually differences? Like these are, that's certainly an area that I think needs more research and that I'd like to get into. But I think overall, just the, um, so much in the field. I, I will say, so what, one area that uh, I am looking to get more into the mechanistic aspect, and uh, we have a, uh, a study that is in process, or actually, I want to say in process, it is in the developmental stage that we'll be looking at uh, metabolites, the effect of metabolites in hypertrophy. And we have, I think, a very unique design that has not been studied at this point. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Awesome. Well, if you need a true non-responder for a cap training study, just let me know. <laughs> uh, the uh, the only other thing I was wondering is, I know, obviously, you know, especially as a scientist, you, you want to follow the research as much as possible. I think, especially with training, a lot of experienced lifters, they, they just feel like something that they've seen in the research just doesn't connect with what they've found in reality. And, and maybe they're just an outlier or something. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you found in the research that with your many, many years of lifting, you just feel like maybe we just don't have it right. Like that the findings maybe just are not in line with what you see in person and in reality as a trainer and somebody who's trained others. So um, I, I do. I, it's interesting. I think that uh, the failure research, because we just, we have a uh, paper that's in review that's going to really reinforce this, but there does not seem to be much difference in training to failure or stopping a couple reps short of failure. And um, the data are what the data are, but right. uh, now I think I'll say what I, the issue and then I'll, I'll give you why I think maybe there's gaps. But uh, in those who really are highly trained, I just think there is a benefit to having some failure training in, uh, involved. Now, a couple of things with the literature that you have to take into account, number one, there really is no research on very well-trained individuals. We have trained individuals, mm -hmm. but when I'm talking very well, I'm talking bodybuilders and people that are, uh, the difference between what we generally see in the research and what I would call a very well-trained lifter is different. 
Yeah. And also, there there is nothing in the literature as yet uh, on training to failure selectively uh, versus basically all the research. Either they look at every set. Let's say they do, there's four mm. sets of squats. They'll either do four sets of squats to failure or four sets not to, to failure. Well, what about just doing the last set to failure and doing an RIR of two on the or one, one to two on the other sets? Right. Uh, so I think those are things that potentially might confound. Uh, it's not a binary decision. You don't need to either train every set to failure or no sets to failure. You can right. selectively train the failure. And, and based on my experience, that has been more the benefit to it, where it's done on a selective basis. And uh, hey, still maybe it's an illusion, but uh, the data, like I said, the data are what the data are. And they, the more that research comes out, it seems to keep reinforcing that there isn't a benefit. But I'm still skeptical for those. Right. And I still do recommend, I, uh, it is something that I still, with people who are very highly trained, I do say for people who are intermediate trainees, certainly novice, that it's really not a big deal. But for those right. who are highly trained, that uh, adding in some failure sets and perhaps even some breakdown sets, drop sets, uh, can be effective. Yeah, and I think that's a great example. I think having talked to a lot of really advanced trainees, I think many of them would agree with you. You know, I, I asked John Meadows a similar question. I know you know him, and um, he really strongly believes that for advanced trainees, there's just something to really going all out. And almost every advanced bodybuilder I know seems to believe that. Now, I know some people could say that's kind of bro science. Like you said, it's not what the research shows. But as much as I do like to be evidence-based and research-based, I also don't want to ignore when an entire group of advanced individuals say that something works for them. So, Absolutely. And I think that is one of the real issues with uh, what people, I think, miss the boat at, uh, with. Uh, and I, again, have come from both sides of the fence. So I was a practitioner right. and a bodybuilder and then went into academia. And uh, I think those who just try to defer to research and say, hey, the research shows this, so we got to... Well, you, you need to... Uh, people who are... Some people like John Meadows knows a thing or two about bodybuilding. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't mean, certainly, that uh, they can get it wrong. They, they're obviously... Bi everyone is biased in terms right. of what they see from an anecdotal standpoint, and that's the beauty of research, is that it, it takes out biases. But... On the other side of the fence, there are gaps in the literature. There are confounding issues. Uh, there are limitations in literature. And uh, you need to have an understanding of both. You need to understand what these limitations are and then also be sk uh, skilled enough and astute enough as a practitioner to know what you see in the field and then try to uh, even that out, balance right. that. Absolutely. All right. Brad, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I know you have a very busy schedule, so I do really appreciate it. And uh, we mentioned your book. Like I said, I'll have a link down below. Anywhere else people can find your stuff? Uh, I'm all over social media. They could just Google me and uh, or go on social media. But I, I do a lot on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as well. So uh, everything except uh, TikTok. <laughs> Maybe better to keep it that way. <laughs> all right. Thanks anyway, a lot, thanks for having me on, Dave. Absolutely.